So this week we're going to be going over uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, and we're going to read, there we go, we're going to read the first, um, let's see, what is it, the first seven verses, starting at verse 3. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So once again, Nahum doesn't pull any punches, and we see that God is a, a, a righteous and just God who's going to pursue his enemies, okay? And he's going to also protect those who take refuge in him, which is a great comfort to us. So last week, just to, uh, a quick recap, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? That's a, that's a rhetorical question, obviously, to which the answer is no one. No one is going to be able to stand before God's indignation or endure the burning of his anger. God's wrath is likened to fire that will burn, melt, consume. It's kind of like when we hear um, the scriptures in the New Testament talk about hell, right? It's a place of flames, hot, right? And we're going to either be burning, uh, not maybe not physically, because at that point, well, right now, they don't have physical bodies, but... Um, do you ever hear that term, oh, he burned with envy? It's like this internal angst, right? Having that forever. Uh, even the rocks, which are the hardest of things, will be broken into pieces. It's a picture, once again, of nothing being able to stand in God's presence. Then we have the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And this is great comfort for God's people. When we look at our, our, out at our, at our society today and we see what's going on, we see how there's a continual raging against God's standard, a raging against His kingdom and His righteousness, this should give us comfort. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Even the destruction and wrath, even during the destruction and the wrath, God is still good. He is sovereign in the midst of it. He's still working all things together for good for those who love him. We're going through that book, All Things Together for Good, by Thomas Watson on Wednesday nights. I encourage you to come out and, and listen. God will keep his covenant and keep his people. This is something that we learned in Job. Right? When God sets his covenant love upon you, he keeps you and will keep you to the end, even through the midst of whatever wrath or judgment is happening. We are perfected by that, that, that judgment. God disciplines those he loves. God's people will take refuge and comfort in him. Right? So when things go wrong, the question becomes, what do you turn to first? Right? What is it that you think of? Right? As God's people, we need to take our comfort in him. He's our strength. We go back to the word. We read the Psalms. 
we call, we, we fellowship with our brothers and sisters and remind ourselves that God is still on the throne and that he will have victory over this. God knows those who are his and they know him. Ultimately, we have salvation in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's start this week. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The goodness of God assumes that he will care for his children and then punish those who seek to harm us. God's goodness does not mean that he will not bring his foes and his people's foes to justice. Often we hear people say, God is too good to punish anyone. Actually, the opposite is true. God is too good not to punish sin. God is so holy and so just that he cannot allow unrepentant sin to go unpunished. If he did, he would be unjust. If God allowed Adolf Hitler to go unpunished for the millions of lives slaughtered, God would not be just. But he is just, and sin will be punished. Like an overwhelming flood, God's wrath will sweep the wicked away. Now, a lot of times you'll get pushback, and people say, well, how could God allow something like the Holocaust? Right? And Ray Comfort does a great job in explaining something like that. He says, when I look at the Holocaust, I know that hell must exist because whoever did this deserves hell. Right? So that actually can become an argument for the justice of God and being exiled from God's presence and us getting what we deserve. Now, yes, the people who, who perpetrated the Holocaust should get hell, but so should we. We violated God's law over and over and over. It's only by the the, the grace and the mercy of God that we have a relationship with him. Verses 8 through 11 alternate between metaphors of destruction and historical comments. Five metaphors describe Nineveh's ends. And an overwhelming flood, into darkness, entangled among thorns, drunk from their wine, and consumed like dry stubble. With an overwhelming flood, the word abar is flood. He will make an end of Nineveh. The word abar occurs four times in Nahum, and it's translated differently each time. It's a significant word root, especially in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, where it gives the sharpest warrant for Nineveh's destruction. Why does Nahum begin with this word abar? Because the opposite has been Judah's experience, since they have been flooded by Nineveh's aggression. Nineveh, uh, uh, the, uh, Israel, was overwhelmed by Assyria. Because Assyria was a huge nation. I just want you to keep in mind, they were the superpower at the time. And they were brutal, brutal people. The way they crucified people, they take a, a pointed stick and stick it through the bottom of the person, right out through their mouth. They would flay people. Um, they would put hooks in their eyes, in their nose, in their breasts, and pull people around by They were brutal, brutal people. And the northern tribes, and then, now the southern tribes are starting to, the northern tribes felt it already, but now the southern tribes are starting to feel a, seri a serious pressure. Okay, they were flooded by that. Okay, God is going to overwhelm them in a flood. Okay, God will make a complete end of the Assyrians with a literal overflowing. Some uh, translations use the word cataclysmic flood in, in the flood of his presence. Uh, remember how God flooded the entire world and spared only eight people, right? We learned about that last week. Pastor talked about Noah. He will do that here as well, only on a much smaller scale. Water and floods are symbols of God's judgment upon his enemies. 
and yet also they are also deliverance and comfort for his people. Okay, we're going to learn about that in two seconds. So Noah's flood, with its catechismic universal impact, gives dramatic expression to the major themes that will be carried by flood imagery throughout the Bible. The first and most far-reaching of floods demonstrates God's sheer power. Right? This is Noah. As he has created a world teeming with life, he could easily destroy it. God declares, I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. And as we learned in the past, this is deconstruction language. God is taking this away, and then he's going to re regroup his people and reconstruct them. The flood also expresses God's hatred of sin, as God sees how humans have corrupted the good world he has created. In his righteousness, God determines to wipe out evil. So he says to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Some people say, well, why doesn't God get rid of all evil right now? Because if he did, we wouldn't be here. There is a place that God created, okay, where there is no evil. The question is, how do you get into that place? You don't get into it in the condition that you're in right now. You need a savior. You need a payment for your sins. You need redemption and cleansing by God's spirit. And that's what he does. He offers that to us in Jesus. Most commonly, flood imagery is used to picture God's determination to punish sin. Whereas judgment came in the form of a literal flood in Noah's time, later references often use flood figuratively to represent any retribution God brings either on his own people, for example, Jerusalem, referred to as Ephraim in Isaiah 28, or on their enemies, as we're learning on Assyria in Nahum 1.8. So Isaiah 28.2 says, Behold, the Lord has one, is, has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters. He cast to the earth with his hand. This he's talking about Assyria coming in like a flood on the northern tribes. So that flood language, yes, it can mean literal water, but it can also be figurative in that he's going to flood them with another army or, or one of their enemies. Like the worldwide deluge of Genesis, flood images often suggest that God works on a large scale, bringing nation against nation, like he did there, to accomplish his purpose. Jeremiah pictures God's use of Pharaoh's armies in this way. See how the waters are rising, and he's talking about Pharaoh's army. They overflow the land and everything in it, and the towns and those who live in them. The people will cry out at the noise of enemy chariots. The Lord is about to destroy the Philistines. Okay, so he describes their army and their coming after the Israelites as a flood. So, oh, I don't want you to see that so quickly. Back this way. All right. So is there, is there any New Testament um, examples of a flood? Any, anybody remember what Peter has to say? I showed it to you two seconds ago. Uh, let me just go. All right, 1 Peter 3. Right, Because they formerly did not obey when God, God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
right? As good Baptist people, we get to talk about baptism right now. I looked for an opportunity, overflowing waters, right? So how could this possibly, an, over, an, uh, an overwhelming flood, be good for God's people? Okay? How does this correspond to baptism? Let's take a look. In water baptism, we are brought under the water, symbolizing the flood or the judgment. But we don't stay there. We are raised up out of it because of Jesus. He is our ark. When we are in Christ, we are in God's ark. The judgment we deserved fell upon Christ and Him at His death, such that His death is our death. When He was raised to life after making payment for our sin, we were raised with Him such that His life is our life. He is our ark sparing us from the judgment of the flood. So the judgment comes, the water comes, and washes away the wickedness, and while we are in Christ, we are preserved. Okay? This is what baptism is. This baptism, this is what baptism corresponds to. Not just the immersion of water, right? It's water, water baptism, an appeal to, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, not the cleansing of dirt from the body. The Holy Spirit circumcises us and renews our minds such that we have faith in Jesus for our salvation and trust that that is enough to save us. And yesterday morning I had uh, Mormons come to, to, to my house. It was a pre-planned visit and I was just questioning them. And one of the verses in the Book of Mormon that they point me to is that they say that we're saved by grace after all we can do. That's not grace. That's not grace. Trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation means that he paid the price for your sins. He absorbed all of it. There's nothing that you do that's going to earn you favor in God's sight. So you're saved by grace after all you can do. Have you done all you can do? Who on earth would think that's good news? It's not. Only the gospel is good news. That when we're buried with Jesus, when he died on that cross, that's where we died. When he raised to life, we raised to life. That's where we live. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We are in Christ. We've been judged already. Right? We're dead to sin and alive to Christ because of the Spirit. Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection. And we are saved from God's judgment, the waters pictured in baptism. We once were under God's judgment. We died to that at the cross. And we were raised from death to life, out of the water and out of judgment and into God's spirit. Now rivers of living water flow from inside of us. Okay, So we've been judged already if we are in Christ. The second metaphor, darkness, describes the kind of end that Nineveh will experience. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Now an ending can be good or bad, but Nineveh's will be be in complete obscurity and oblivion, right? And look at that word. He pursues his enemies. Do you think you're going to outrun God? Where can you go that he's not there? That's right. You're not going to win that fight. And it's also um, pursue. Here it is, the verb meaning to pursue, to chase, to persecute. It means to chase after, to pursue someone in a hostile manner. 
as when Abraham pursued Lot's captors. Remember that? He went after them after they, they took Lot. Or the way Pharaoh pursued Israel. It refers to the Lord's pursuit of persons or nations to punish and judge them. It refers to hunting, chasing after animals. It takes on the sense of persecuting persons and harassing them. God is going to get his enemies. Figuratively, it describes the chasing, chasing rewards or strong drink. To pursue one's enemies to darkness means to utterly wipe them out. That's what verse 8 is talking about. In a passive sense, it means to be chased. In its passive stem, it refers to what has vanished or passed away. So God is going to chase his enemies. He's going to judge them, and they will be no more. Darkness. What is darkness? The absence of light. I hit the button too quick again. I gave you the answer. Maybe I need coffee. All right. Okay. So we hear lot, lots, lots of word, lots of uh, mentions of darkness. Right. Our our minds were once dark, and they were enlightened after the spirit comes inside of us. Right. Based on physical properties, darkness becomes a rich source of metaphor for spiritual realities. If light symbolizes understanding, darkness represents ignorance, folly, a, science, uh, a silencing of prophetic revelations, the state of the human mind unilluminated by God's revelation. It's a sign of falsehood when you're in darkness and the loss of walking in God's truth because the darkness has brought on blindness. Right? We need light. We need God's light to illumine us such that now we can see. Even when we read the, the, the Word of God, right, the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. The man in the flesh cannot understand them. We need God's light so that we, when we read the Scriptures, we can understand what we're reading okay, and apply it to our lives. We'll have the Spirit apply it to our lives. Sometimes when you read the Scriptures, don't just read the Scriptures. Let the Scriptures read you. Right? Let them illuminate to you the things that you have to change. It's so easy when you hear a message or you read a scripture and be like, oh, so-and-so really needs to hear this. They really need to hear this. And then all of a sudden it's like, I really need to hear this. Shut your mouth. <laughs> okay. Shut your mouth. Think about how this affects you. Now you can share it with other people, of course. Okay, but you want to see how the Spirit affects you. Okay, look at what Jude says. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Have you ever tried to picture utter darkness and yourself being completely in the dark forever? You start thinking about that, it's debilitating. You know, you're like, gosh, whatever I need to do, I'll do. You know, we have one life to live. Let's, let's live our lives for Christ. Let's leave everything out on the field that God's given us. Okay? Main idea in this verse uh, 1 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. The idea is resistance is futile, futile because God is invincible. There's no battle that God fought that he lost. There's no trial that, that Jesus advocated that he lost. Right? 
if we always ask, oh, God, we always say to people, oh, God's on my side. You need to be on God's side, right? Don't think that you're going to draft God into your, you know, your activities during and say, oh, I got God on my side. You need to repent and be on God's side. You need to be doing what God told you to do. And recognize when you look out at the world, we see what's going on, Ukraine and Russia. Both sides are wrong. They're both sinful. There's issues on, throughout this whole thing. You can't stand on one side, oh, God's on this person's side. You need to recognize that we need to be on God's side. Both sides need to repent. The United States needs to. We all need to repent, for crying out loud. Don't get me going. All right. Nineveh would not go quietly, however, yet their resistance against Israel's omnipotent God was futile. Whatever they plotted against the Lord would fail. We are reminded of the psalmist's words. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire against the Lord and his anointed one, Jesus. They say, let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Listen, when someone says, what is a woman? You need to laugh. Are you kidding me? You're so deluded, you don't know what a woman is? This is what we're afraid of? No. No. You know what? I got, I got, I got to read this, and I was going to read it from the pulpit this morning. It's Deuteronomy. If you want to follow along, it's Deuteronomy 20, um, verses 1 through 4. I went over this with my brother last week. Listen to what the Word of God says. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come, come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. You are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. You might say, oh, that's the Old Testament. That was when they were fighting you know, the Canaanites and all these lands. Guess what happens in John chapter 14? First line, what does Jesus say? Let not your heart faint. Let not your heart faint. Do not be troubled. This is our high priest standing in the midst of the disciples saying, listen, I'm leaving, okay, but I'm going to send you the comforter. Go into battle. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God will deliver you. We cannot look out at the, the nation, the world, and start walking in fear. We have to walk in obedience to God's word and trust that he has a plan and a purpose in the midst of this, okay? If we're a little bold, the righteous are as bold as a lion, fear of man is a snare, okay? Put your bold on. Let's go. About 100 years earlier, a serious king, Sennacherib, had challenged the Lord. This resulted in his own destruction and that of his army. This time, Nineveh would have no second opportunity, this time, to oppose God, for he would completely destroy them. 
This is the second time that Nahum uses that word complete. And he's going to use it another two times in this section through uh, verses 9 through 15 for a total of four times. And it's designed that way. So this word kala is a feminine noun meaning completion, complete destruction, annihilation. In the sense of completion, God told Moses that Pharaoh would let the the Israelites go by driving them completely out of Egypt. Right? So the Israelites were completely out of Egypt. Complete destruction or annihilation was most often attributed to God. Isaiah prophesied that the Lord would make a determined end to Israel. Nahum spoke of God's judgment by which he made an utter end of his enemies. So, God is not a revenging God. He's an avenging God. And he's going to bring justice upon his enemies. He's going to pursue them. Okay? Now, why is it a complete end? Why would he use that word complete? Any ideas? He's going to bring a complete end to these Syrians. Yes? Right, the story's ending, right, he's, he's going to bring a, he's, it's going to be complete, total, right? How would the Assyrians pursue their enemies? Right, how would they destroy them? Completely. They wanted utter domination, completely wipe them out, okay? Matthew 7, 1, for the judgment you pronounce, with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Yes, Jerry? Yes, right. So, yeah, that's, that's God meeting out justice. You're gonna, it, the, the, the penalty is going to fit the crime. Now, when we judge other people, the measure by which we judge them is the measure that we're going to receive in return. So when the Assyrians come in and completely wipe out Israel, okay, God's going to use that measure upon them. We have to be careful how we judge people. Are we judging people in love? Are we wearing a lab coat trying to point them to the Savior? Savior, Or are we wearing a black robe trying to condemn them? Right? Very important. Proverbs 131. Therefore, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. All right? We pray uh, sometimes on Wednesdays and sometimes from the pulpit that, they, that people would fall into the pit that they dug for others. In other words, we want them to experience the same thing that they were going to try on someone else. Perfect example is Nahum, uh, Naaman, right? He, he, he puts up the gallows. He's getting ready to, to hang. I forget who it was, right? And he's hung on that gallows himself, right? So he receives the punishment which he was going to use on someone else. Isaiah 3.11, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Be careful how you judge. Job 4, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You're going to reap the consequences of the sin. right? You can choose the sin. You don't get to choose the consequence. God does. Assyrian pride desired vengeance reminiscent of Lamech's taunt. Lamech said, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Because of this hubris, Assyria made a complete end 
of the ten northern tribes. So here you see, you, got, you have people, it's the, the nature of the human heart. If we get pricked, we're looking to do worse damage to our enemy. Right? That's not what we're called to do biblically. Like Jerry said, it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay? When you go beyond what the punishment deserves, that's the measure that you're going to receive in return. Right? Though Nahum, through Nahum, I'm sorry, God held Assyria to its own standard. As Assyria claimed the right to execute total vengeance upon a vassal who plotted against it, God would execute total vengeance against Assyria for breaking its treaty obligations to him. Remember, Assyria was in covenant with God's people. They were taking money, right? There was a, there was a covenant between them. So when you break that covenant, like Lawrence brought up a couple weeks ago, God's going to hold them to the standard of that covenant. You hurt God's people, God is going to bring that back upon you. So their punishment would be complete because their punishment on others was complete, total. It was the measure that they used. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Judge not that you be, that you be not judged. For with the righteous judge, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this, does, this is not saying that you shouldn't judge. Okay, You judge with the right standard, and you judge in humility. If you have a log in your own eye, or you're suffering for a, from a certain sin, now you're going to tell other people, you're going to condemn other people for committing the same sin that you have an issue with, not good, not good. You need to repent of that sin. You need to turn from it. You need to walk in victory over it, right? Now, it doesn't mean that you can't tell somebody, hey, listen, brother, I saw you doing something you know, in love, trying to, to persuade them, you know, snatch a brother uh, away from that sin and, and help him overcome it, right? Come alongside, pray for them, work with people, right? Love people. If you love somebody and you see them doing something that's that's wrong, that's going to injure others or injure their relationship with God, you lovingly want to tell them, let's not do that. Here's what the Word says about that. Okay? It's the difference between loving somebody and helping correct them or heaping judgment on somebody and pointing a finger, saying you're condemned for what you're doing. Right? Okay. Remember what happened to Assyria and Nineveh. 150 years prior, they were granted repentance. Right? When Jonah preached, they repented. They, act, they did actually repent, and Israel was spared judgment. And only a generation later, they were back to their old ways. So they went back to being Assyria and conquering the, the, the lands around them. Jesus did say in Matthew 12, 41, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater then Jonah is here. The generation that heard Jonah did repent, but the subsequent generations didn't follow. Assyrian history does not show a great or lasting effect as the result of Jonah's reluctant preaching. Right? So when we recognize that Nineveh, Assyria, same thing, uh, was a wicked city, and God granted them repentance such that they're going to rise up at the judgment, and they're going to point to Jesus and say, you should have repented. You had Jesus, right? Nineveh and Assyria didn't have that. They just had Jonah. 
right? How much more severe will it be for those who's, who knew Jesus when he, when he physically was here, okay, who rejected him, like the Pharisees and the Jews of that time, to know, to see him, and then to see his death and resurrection and deny him? Even Nineveh is going to look and say, you should have repented. Are you kidding? Right? So, again, before we, before we point the finger at someone else, we have to look at our own, our own self. Does Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection mean anything to us? Are we truly living humble, repentant lives, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God? Right? We know Jesus. How similar this was to the children of Israel in the Old Testament as they wandered through the wilderness. Time and time again, they incurred severe displeasure of the Lord, and then there was a turning to him in repentance when he acted against them. But it had no lasting effect, and they again incurred his severest displeasure. The writer to the Hebrews uses this uh, uh, to telling the effect when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Okay? So we know, we know the death, burial, and resurrection of, the, of Jesus. We have the testimony of the scriptures. We have so much today that God has blessed us with. We have the proclamation of the gospel. We have a better sign, the sign of Jonah, which, again, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So before we judge people uh, harshly or with the wrong uh, standard, we have to look at our own hearts. Have we turned? Have we repented? Do we trust in Jesus? Okay. Remember, God's going to pursue his enemies. It's only those who take their refuge in him that will be spared. Again, when Jesus is your ark, you've, you will come through the waters of judgment, purified. That The water will purify us rather than punish us. Okay? So this basically ends uh, Nahum 1 through 9. Actually, yes, sir. Uh, I'm thinking about the, uh, the temple, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Temple, that temple image. Um, so various of the leaders of the Assyrians had plotted evil against the Lord, but this is the message given to all who seek to work against God. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring it to an end. No lasting success can ever come to those who are the enemies of God. No blessing can ever come upon any who do not acknowledge the Lord to be the one who is in some supreme control of all things. So again, when you look out at the people who are raging against God, Okay, we actually need to have pity on them. The fact that they don't know what a, what a man or a woman is, ridiculous, ridiculous. God help, God help them. But Nahum gave them some good news. He said, trouble will not come to Israel a second time. Once God wiped out the Assyrians, they were gone. They, the, the Israelites didn't have to worry about them anymore. He meant that torment would not come again from the Assyrians. He could say this because he knew that it was his plan that the whole Assyrian Empire would shortly be utterly destroyed. The Assyrians were to find out that the things they depended on for their protection and their joy would backfire upon them. How many people in the government, in the world, are depending on money, depending on pleasure, on toys, all these things that they're accumulating? That's not going to help them. 
You know, that's not going to help them in God's judgment, in God's wrath. Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So that's the question. God's going to pursue his enemies. His enemies are those people who resist him and fight against him. There's no neutrality. You are either with Jesus or against Jesus. If you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you're his enemy. You're against him. You're not gathering with him. You're not gathering God's people into his kingdom. You're scattering them. Not making a decision is a decision, right? We need to recognize who Jesus is. We have to recognize our own sinful state before him and recognize he's the solution to the problem. Government is not the solution to any of our problems. Government adds to the problem, right? The only solution to our problem is Jesus as king. He's Lord. We need to repent and trust in him, him alone. Any final questions? We're right at the end. Yes, Jerry. Yes, yeah. And then God took that away, right? He used them to judge Israel, right? And, and Israel was given all this stuff from God, right? And they fell short, and he took it away. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, you know, through the, uh, the whole idea of the ark aspect, there was a remnant saved, of course. Sure. So even in Babylon, Babylon, in a sense, was an ark for, uh, for Judah, the Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, God's God's in control. Uh, but we have to remember God's in control, but we're also responsible for our actions. We can't just uh, do whatever we want and say, "Well, God's in control; He must have sovereignly decided I do this." You know, you're responsible for God's moral will. You're responsible for what he's revealed to us in his, in his word morally. You are called to act in a certain way. Claiming that God's sovereign and you don't have to act in a certain way is, is, is negating your responsibility. Yes? Yeah. Yes. God does, thankfully, actively restrain the evil in men's hearts. Uh, and, and for his people, he changes their hearts such that they're now inclined towards good. Right? But we have to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're still in this temptation period. One day we're going to be delivered from that. Right? And in, uh, in justification, we're, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, uh, we're delivered from the power of sin. And in glorification, we're, we're delivered from the presence of sin. Right? So we have that promise that there's going to come a day where we're going to be in a place with God where there is no sin. Right now, we're in that testing for that temptation phase. Right? We have to remain faithful. We have to be right. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Go out, proclaim the gospel, and let God do what God does. We're good? All right, we're right on time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord God, that you are merciful and gracious and that you are a refuge for those who turn to you. Father, you know those uh, who are yours, and they know you. Father, we pray that you would protect us in the midst of what's going on in this world, and that your church would rise up 
and do its job and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and see your enemies either fall on their knees in mercy asking you for repentance or be removed. Father, may they fall into the pits that they dug for themselves and may your church shine. May she be the glorious bride that you said would be without spot or blemish. Father, we pray for the upcoming worship service that your will would be done and we would properly worship you and you would receive all that you're due. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.